Good morning, everyone. Good morning. <laughs> it's nice to see a full Zendo once again. Um, but whether the Zendo is full or not, we still keep practicing. But it's nice to have a full Zendo. This morning, we're going to bring our time with the Loving Kindness Sutra to a close. Uh, it's not the case that you'll never hear it again, or it'll be a while. Um, but the focus of our Dharma talks on Sunday is going to change once again. Um, to what, you might wonder? Stay tuned. You'll find out in about two weeks. Um, next Sunday is a little bit different. So the third, or the last, of the Loving-Kindness Sutra's parts reads, Let none deceive another, or despise any being in any state. Let none through anger or ill will wish harm upon another. Just as a mother protects with her life her child, her only child, so with a boundless heart should one cherish all living beings radiating kindness over the entire world, spreading upwards to the skies and downwards to the depths, outwards and unbounded, freed from hatred and ill will, whether standing or walking, seated or lying down. During all one's waking hours, let one practice the way with gratitude. By not holding to fixed views, the pure-hearted one, having clarity of vision, being freed from all sense desires, is not born again into this world. And a few weeks ago, when I realized we were coming to the end of our time with this sutra, I really wasn't sure what to say about this last part. And I had promised Simon a couple weeks ago that I would stop talking about anger for a while. I thought I could just continue that theme, but I told him, nope, not for several months and the rest of the year, in fact. And that is appreciated. Yeah, you're very welcome. <laughs> in the beginning, I shared with all of you how my relationship with the sutra has changed over the years. These days, I see a little bit better the inclusive way of being in and moving through the world that it outlines. Sometimes we walk straight and sure-footed, and sometimes we fall down, down to the ground or down to the sky. And we can stand up by the ground and stand up by the sky, and all of this, and probably more, is part of practicing the way with gratitude during our waking hours. The last lines of the Sandakai, the harmony of identity and difference by Sakito Kisen read, I respectfully urge you who would practice the way, do not vainly pass through sunshine and shadows. Sometimes we might think that it's difficult to not vainly pass through sunshine and shadows. I don't know about you, but if I wake up later than like 8 a.m., I feel like I've wasted the entire day. It's very easy for me to feel like my efforts just aren't enough. 
But most of the time, I'm inclined to suppose the opposite, that it's difficult to not not vainly pass through sunshine and shadows. As long as we continue practicing, our efforts are not made in vain. We also spent a couple weeks exploring how we might roll strong emotions, especially anger, into our practice and work with them, not against them, or try to avoid them in seemingly clever and ultimately unsuccessful ways. Because these emotions are part of our lives. Maybe you were here when Colleen said some weeks ago she runs on rage and ibuprofen. And while we need not invite these strong emotions into our homes and serve them tea, we also can't forbid them from knocking at our doors from time to time. Indeed, we might find ourselves at a place in our practice life eventually where we can see the opportunities that strong emotions and their contributing causes and conditions offer us, rejoicing upon hearing that familiar knock. I'm not going to say it's going to come tomorrow or next week or even next year, but maybe you might find yourself smiling a bit. Because how else can we cultivate Kasanti Paramita, the perfection of patience, except by meeting difficult circumstances directly? Coming to understand in our bodies that others are suffering too, just as we are, and sometimes their suffering spills out onto us, just as ours spills out onto them. Recall this bucket of water image I used a few weeks ago. Sakito Kisen's other poem, Soanka, or the Song of the Grass Roof Hermitage, instructs us to not escape from this skin bag here and now, to not give up but to continually bind grasses to build a hut. So we practice being right here with what is, responding to what comes up in our lives, and we continue making a consistent effort. And it was at this point, spurred also by something Brad said a few weeks ago at tea, that it occurred to me this is what I should talk about. Effort! Effort, 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 effort. Practicing the way, being generous and grateful, upright and patient, requires effort. It requires a great effort. An effort not born from stubbornness and willpower, as I said a few weeks ago, but from a constancy of purpose, a well-tempered vow to awaken with all beings. So that's what I want to say a little bit about this morning by way of the fourth paramita. This is virya paramita, the perfection of energy or the perfection of joyful effort. You'll also see as translations of virya diligence, like what's on the back of our Han out there, perseverance, vigor, and vitality. But I'll just talk about energy and joyful effort today. Our work as bodhisattvas is never finished. Do you remember the bodhisattva's vows? If you don't, that's okay. I'm going to read them for you. 
Beings are numberless. I vow to save them. Desires are inexhaustible. I vow to put an end to them. Dharma gates are boundless. I vow to enter them. And the Buddha's way is unsurpassable. I vow to accomplish it. Numberless beings, inexhaustible desires, boundless Dharma gates, it sounds like a movie trailer, and an unsurpassable (laughs) way. Where are you going to find the energy to do all this? It might seem impossible. And sound like a movie trailer, my goodness. (laughs) So perhaps we can start with undertakings that are a little bit closer to where you are at this moment. Do you have a daily sitting practice? Do you want a daily sitting practice? You might not want one. How about a precept journal or some way in which you work with the precepts in your day-to-day life? Is there an author, book, or sutra that you want to explore? How are your efforts in these directions? Wherever they are, and however they are, I want to tell you that it's all all right. It's all all right because you can't be other than where you are in this moment. Even though you might wish you were and hoped you would be and beat yourself up because you're not. You're here and all things considered being here is a pretty good place. Let's just admit that. It's also all all right because moving intentionally in some direction requires understanding where you are in the first place. If you desire to sit daily, for example, you can begin by inquiring into why you are not currently sitting daily. What's getting in the way? Are you too tired? Are you too busy? Have you set too high of expectations for what daily sitting practice looks like? I do this. I'm going to sit three hours a day, every day. No. That's absurd. Are you holding too tightly onto an image of what daily sitting practice looks like? Where are you right now in your practice life? Have you taken time to check in? When we sit with and work with these and other questions, we try to do so without judgment, in a sense. The word judgment is unwelcome in certain circles, and I think I understand why. I also don't think it's necessary. So has someone ever said to you, stop being so judgy? Stop being so judgy. You're so judgy, Simon. If so, you were probably a teenager or you were older and still had the maturity of a teenager, and that's true for most of us. And everything was dumb, or lame, or stupid. And the only things that were cool were the things that you thought were cool. Some of us, maybe most of us, learn this conception of judgment at a relatively early age, and we never revisit it until much later, if at all. 
But there are two things happening here, and I think it's important to see them. First, there's a statement of how things are. I sit three days a week. I occasionally write in my precept journal. I have bought but not opened that book on the Lotus Sutra. These are simple, clear, direct statements of how things are. What usually follows, though, and what so many people find objectionable, is some evaluation of how things are. So, I sit three days a week, and that's not good enough. That's disappointing. I occasionally write in my precept journal, and that is unacceptable. And I am a bad Zen student. I bought but have not opened that book on the Lotus Sutra, so I should just give up and admit that I failed at being a Buddhist. And I'm being a little dramatic here, but only a little bit. This second part, this evaluation of how things are is extra and most of the time unnecessary. Yet it comes along with simple statements of how things are so automatically, so naturally, in so much of our lives. Now, just so we're clear, our way is not to never evaluate anything ever, but to do so when it's appropriate. And so you might try noticing over the course of an hour, if you can pay attention for that long, I can't, how many times you include these evaluations in your judgments of how things are, and then you can ask yourself, were all of these necessary? I don't know. That's for you to decide. It's your life. I'm just sitting over here covered occasionally in cat hair. No judgment about that. When we assess where we are in our practice life then, much of the time we try to do so without such evaluations. Yet we still arrive at a judgment of where we are based on our direct experience and perhaps the assessment of our teacher, if we're working with a teacher. And from that place, we can move intentionally in a certain direction. Our effort can begin from and be supported by an awareness and investigation of our present circumstances usually without judgment, which is just to say without evaluating whether our present circumstances are good or bad. Later in the Sandakai, Sakito Kisan writes, if you stick to the ideas of good or bad, you will be separated from the way by high mountains or big rivers. So what are the high mountains or big rivers in your life right now? Pardon me. Could you repeat that, please? Be happy to. If you stick to the ideas of good or bad, you will be separated from the way by high mountains or big rivers. So again, what are the high mountains or big rivers in your practice life right now? There's something else worth mentioning at this point, and it requires us returning to the Vimalakirti Sutra once more. I'm sorry, Medo. 
Six talks on the Vimalakirti, months of preparation. Talked about it when you got back, and it's still going. You will never escape this wonderful sutra. Some weeks ago, some months ago, I don't really remember, I spoke at length about a scene from the end of the sutra's first chapter. I don't know if you remember this one. It involves the Buddha's big toe. Shariputra is observing and lamenting the current condition of Shakyamuni's Buddha field. He says that its current condition is impure. There are highs and lows, thorns, precipices, peaks, and abysses. We might say that there is old age, sickness, and death or that the eight worldly winds of pleasure and pain, gain and loss, praise and blame and fame and obscurity blow with force, ferocity, and with a consistent, uh, unrelenting regularity in our lives. Such is this Saha world, and so shall it always be, or so it seems to Shariputra. I don't think it's out of place for me to say that each one of you has felt and may feel in this very moment just what Shariputra felt then. You see clearly how things are, how generally things have been, and you might feel a certain hopelessness or general dissatisfaction that things will continue to be that way without fail. You feel resigned to experiencing current and increasing levels of conflict and discontent, hostility and insecurity, injustice and oppression. This is just the way that the world is, has been, and if history offers some indication, will always be. You might cry, I can do nothing about this. And you might wonder whether anything really matters. Why bother making an effort, great or small, in any direction at all? I should just stay on the couch, under a blanket, with my cats, and watch Kung Fu, and forget about the rest of the world. I'm being a little dramatic again, but only a little bit. Upon hearing Shariputra, Shakyamuni Buddha steps down from his seat and presses his big toe into the earth. And immediately the earth was transformed into a huge pass of precious jewels, a magnificent array of many hundreds of thousands of clusters of precious gems until it resembled the universe of the Tathagata Ratnavuha called Infinite Array of Jewel Qualities Universe. There's actually a really long Pali word there that I'm not going to try and pronounce. I practiced, and after like six times, I still couldn't get it, so I just gave up. No effort in that direction. And everyone in the entire assembly was filled with wonder, each perceiving himself seated on a throne of jeweled lotuses. It's tempting 
to interpret this moment as signifying that the best is yet to come. We sometimes hear people say this. Political officials sometimes talk this way, right? The best is yet to come. I don't know what this means. Maybe it means that a world free of old age, sickness, and death is out there for us someday. A world where disease and famine, uncertainty, and anxiety no longer run rampant throughout our lives. That is, that there's something akin to a Buddhist heaven in which we may someday reside. You can read the passage in that way if you want. But I'm going to offer you a different way of reading this passage, understanding this scene. So the last lines of the Loving Kindness Sutra again read, By not holding to fixed views, the pure-hearted one, having clarity of vision, being freed from all sense desires, is not born again into this world. Fixed views. Clarity of vision. The former often, maybe always, gets in the way of the latter. Shariputra, in this scene from the Vimalakirti Sutra, has fixed views about the current conditions and future possibilities of the Saha world. We sometimes hold tightly, sometimes hold loosely, to fixed views about the current conditions and future possibilities of our world. And actually, the Saha world and our world are the same world, they're the same Buddha field, they're Shakyamuni's field, but sometimes we forget this because surface appearances seem to differ greatly. When Shakyamuni digs his big toe into the earth and consequently the earth transforms, he shows Shariputra and others present and us, not that there is some Buddhist heaven waiting for us someday. The Buddha shows us that our fixed views do not reflect how things actually are and in two ways. So first, while it may very well be the case that things are as we judge them to be in this moment, there are highs and lows, peaks, thorns, precipices, and abysses. That is only the case for this moment. In the next moment, who can say? We may look around just as Shariputra does, and suddenly see a world filled with jewels and every person seated on a golden lotus throne. There is nothing that necessitates, and this is the key word here, the way things are now, continuing for very long into the future, even into the next discrete measurement of time. Would you like a real-life example of this? Thank you for nodding. I'm also going to give you one, but it tells me that you're paying attention. Thumbs up. October 7th, 2023. Thousands of people in towns along the border between Gaza and Israel, out of seemingly nowhere, met with individuals running through towns, perpetrating violence. 
What many, I assume, thought would be an ordinary everyday Saturday was the beginning of another conflict, another war. More than likely, someone was driving to the market for fruits and vegetables, as they probably do every Saturday, and moments later was shot, was killed. Their life ended in the minutes that followed starting the car. There is nothing that necessitates the way things are now continuing for very long into the future, even into the next discrete measurement of time. The second thing is underneath, if you will, this first thing. There is nothing that necessitates the way things are now continuing for very long into the future because all things are empty. Empty of what, you might ask? Of any inherent nature, as we might call it, or fixed essence. All things are without anything that necessitates that they be anything or any kind of thing from one moment to the next moment. We tend to lose sight of this, however, in part because causes and conditions result in a seemingly stable reality and because of our egos and their accompanying fears, insecurities, and anxieties, and whatever else, we crave a stable, predictable, secure, and safe life. And while it may be that so much of the time our lives do feel that way, it's not always so. As many, many, many examples remind us, often painful examples, remind us. Actually, our lives are never that way. That is what Shakyamuni offers us the opportunity to see when he digs his big toe into the earth. Understanding the emptiness of all things, including emptiness itself, can offer great energy. Do you see how? Can you see why? We tend to become listless when we believe that things cannot change. But the teachings tell us that the only thing we can depend on is change. This is nothing other than the truth of impermanence, one of the three marks of existence right before our eyes. Yet it takes great courage to face this truth directly. May you find that courage and receive the gift of Virya Paramita. There really is nothing standing in the way except yourself.